I'm Lisa German. I'm the dean of the libraries. And hello, Lisa. We are so glad to have you all here um, to this event sponsored by the Friends of the Libraries and the Campus Club. Um, I'd like to acknowledge our, the leadership of our friends, um, Amelia White, who's our chair. Okay. And Lissa jones Logren, who is going to be our chair next year. So we are really excited tonight. This is the first uh, feast we've had since January 2020. Um, and that, at least in person, we've had two others, but not in person. Um, so this is my first in-person event. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge uh, my dean colleagues who are here, Brian Burr, who's the dean of CFANS, who's the dean of the college that Mike's in. And Michael Rodriguez, who is the Dean of the College of Education and Human Development. So we're glad to see them both here. And we are so, so glad to see all of you. This is a fabulous turnout, and I think that's a testimony to um, just how much interest there is um, in listening to Mike and hearing what he has to say. Um, I'm so glad that you could join us this evening for this wonderful meal, and thank you very much for applauding Beth and, and her colleagues because it was fabulous. And Mike's gonna be talking to us about wild rice, its relationship to the native um, nations of Minnesota and Wisconsin, and how it's been managed in the research activities of the University of Minnesota. Um, today, bringing his own lens as a member of the citizen Potawatomi Nation, we are pleased to welcome Mike Dockery. His nation's traditional territories are around Lake Michigan and a reservation in central Oklahoma. He's the, he's the assistant professor for tribal natural resource management at the University of Minnesota's Department of Forest Resources. His research and teaching relates to strengthening tribal sovereignty addressing tribal environmental issues, and incorporating indigenous knowledge into forestry. Professor Dockery will offer us a new perspective on the complex and multi-layered relationship between the native peoples of Minnesota, the university's scientists, and wild rice, Manuman. Wild rice is a delicious food, and to the native nations, so much more. Now I'd like to acknowledge the peoples upon whose land we meet. The University of Minnesota Twin Cities is built within the tra traditional homelands of the Dakota people. It is important to acknowledge the people on whose land we live, learn, and work as we seek to improve and strengthen our relations with tribal nations. We also acknowledge that words are not enough. We must ensure that our institution provides support resources and programs that increase access to all aspects for American Indian students, staff, faculty, and community members. And now we'll hear Professor Dockery's perspective as a native scientist on wild rice research and what that means for our future. So please join me in welcoming Professor Mike Dockery.
Bonjour, Denway Maganak. Quab Mat Mashiki Manise Indigenakas, Green Bay, Doch Baya, St. Paul and Deda, Chona Kendison and Dodem, Nishnabe and Dao, Bodwadme and Dao, Shishibani and Debendagwis. Hello, everybody. Really nice to be here. I appreciate this. Um, the intro was very nice. It's nice to be here with you sharing this food. Um, I think I, I'm not going to talk as much about wild rice as maybe I, I promised, but I'm looking at this idea of 21st century challenges and how our indigenous peoples can really lead us forward here. So if there, I will talk about wild rice, so don't, don't worry about that. But if you have questions at the end, let's, we can talk about that more too. Um, so here we go. Here's um, our tribe, kind of a painting that I got. I wanted to put myself in context here as I start off this discussion today. I'll also say that this is, I'm, I'm playing with something new here. I'm trying to, trying to, this is a new talk, let's put it that way. So hopefully I can keep it moving and you're all smiling already, so that's good. So like, like uh, was presented here, I want to acknowledge where I am and why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I live here and work in the traditional, historical, and contemporary lands of the Dakota people. And I'm obligated to build relationships with Dakota and other indigenous people of the region to support their goals for natural resource management. I teach about this, I research this, and I work um, in tribal forestry and natural resources so that others can do this as well. And that's why I'm here. That's what I'm doing today. All right, a little I don't, bio of me. I did, I've done a whole bunch of stuff. I've been real fortunate. I'm, my face looks younger than I really am, so. <laughs> I've been very lucky in this way. I was in the Peace Corps. I lived in Bolivia, met my lovely wife here, Carmen. Um, we were married 21 years, right? I, yeah, thanks. I have another picture of her, though, but not the one with the cats. Um, I've worked with indigenous peoples my entire career. I had an internship with the United Tribe in Green Bay, in Bolivia. Uh, I worked with indigenous students. I worked as a planner for the Forest Service and, and really did a lot of tribal consultation work. Worked with the College of Menominee Nation and I'll be talking quite a bit about Menominee and showing you some pictures and documents. Um, and I, so I worked for the Forest Service 20 some years and then came here to the university in 2019 precisely because I wanted to do more teaching. I want people to understand treaty rights and what our obligations are to tribal nations. Here are my family. All right, my dad, my mom, my grandmother, so my father's Potawatomi, uh, my grandmother there, Potawatomi, uh, my mom, my grandparents, both uh, Polish. Um, here's my family, there's Carmen. We were talking about the dog, Molly, there. Son, Michael, and daughter, Didi. And then this was at our, uh, one of our family festivals, ceremonies, down in Oklahoma, so that's aunts, uncles, cousins. And I was trying to remember, this was a while ago, and I think Michael, my son, is, is I don't know if you could, oh, there's my dad, my mom. I think that's Michael back there, but I'm not sure exactly. <laughs> this is my brother there. Okay. So I'm situating myself. I spent a lot of time with Menominee people in, um, in their reservation. So this is a picture of Kashina Falls, uh, working with the tribal college, working with the foresters. And as you will hear, how many people have heard of the Menominee forestry sort of activities? 
Yeah, quite a few, but not, not everyone. So you'll, you'll be really amazed to hear this. And I'll show this picture again uh, in a different context towards the, um, I guess, middle of the talk. Um, I like to play. I like to be out on the water. So this is a picture that kind of reminds me of our, you know, being outside. We were camping, well, in a cabin. Um, like to play lacrosse. So we have our lacrosse sticks there, have my life jackets, because I was a camp counselor, and we have to wear our life jackets when we're out there. Right. And then when I was with the Forest Service, a lot of my, my formation as a, I guess, a professional and with the United Tribe and with the Forest Service is planning. You, know, you can see that there's a map of the, I think that's the Green Mountain National Forest map. You know, getting people together to talk about our issues, to try to figure out where we want to go in the future. And that's where I see all of my work coming together. Like, How do we talk together and get ready for the future and really march forward in unison rather than in conflict, rather in a way that is unsustainable? Because we, I think we can all admit we're on an unsustainable path here. Here's another shot at Menominee. Uh, we did a lot of tours. I was, again, so blessed. I think I led six to 800 people. I counted them up one time on tours of the Menominee Reservation to see their forestry. And this, this is kind of one of the tours. Well, this is what I want to focus on as the title of the talk. Tribal environmental knowledge and partnerships and how that really can be 20th century game changers. Um, I'm going to go back here. See, I do have notes, but I'll try to stay away from them a little bit. But so I'm talking about what is tribal environmental knowledge? And we'll kind of go into this. I don't want to define it, but needless to say, tribes have been managing these lands, the lands where we are, this river system, right, everything, uh, for thousands of years. And we're still here managing this land. It's a continuum. Um, and tribes have faced all these issues that we're facing now over time, right? This is, you know, we think about climate change as an environmental, um, but these changes that tribes have managed through, the economic shifts that have happened, particularly through colonization, massive change, massive climate change. Our social structures have been changed, and that picture, that painting, that beautiful painting of, of our tribe, you saw the, the, the like farmers, right? That's a massive social change to move to that system. And our, my, we're citizen band Potawatomi. Um, we chose to become farmers. We took our allotments in Oklahoma. We're from the southern part of Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, right? That's a massive change. Massive ecological change as the landscape, I'm a forester, so as the landscape was transformed through essentially clearing, burning, conversion to agriculture, massive change. So we've all managed through this and we're continuing to manage into this future and tribes are really leading the way in all of these areas. I work with tribes every day, my students do as well. We see this, we, we understand what our tribal communities are doing. So hopefully I can um, share some of that with you now. But, but our economic problems in our country, what do we have? We have inequality. We have people that don't have jobs, that, that need more income. Um, we have social problems. We have isolation, right? Um, lack of respect, lack of understanding of each other. We have health um, inequities, environmental problems. We've got climate change, invasive species. 
wildfires that are not part of the regular system, right, out of control. We've got this flooding, these droughts. We have all of these problems coming together. And I think what I want to do tonight is talk about bringing us to respect um, and that this lack of respect is causing this and that our tribes can show us how we do this. Respect for people, respect for community, respect for each other, respect for the environment. Um, and part of this problem that I'm showing here uh, is a lack of diverse perspectives, right? We don't have all the voices we need at the table to talk through these issues in order to get to a 21st century that we all would like to see. Um, so my proposal is that we think about the economic, social, environmental changes and, and really engage with tribal communities and let tribes lead us forward um, to solve these problems. So here's one. This is Emerald Ashbor. I don't know if people have heard of this one. Probably because we live in a city that's, you know, many of our ash trees are gone because of this, right? And, and I'll say too, this is, again, you think of an ecological change, but this is our economics. Where did this beetle come from? It came in shipping. So it's international trade is causing this. Um, social, you can look at different neighborhoods and how they've been impacted by this, right? Here's a Menominee woman uh, with black ash baskets. So this is an invasive species, this, this is the culture, this is the ecology, this is our social problems all coming together to, to impact our tribal communities. The lacrostics I showed, those are made out of ash as well, right? These are the trees that are being damaged by this beetle. It's not a new thing for us, is what I'm showing you here. Here is, we did a lot of conferences on emerald ash borer over the years to try to figure out what is this going to mean for us as people who rely and have a deep relationship with ash? You know, what does this mean for us? So here are some Potawatomi basket makers um, at one of our conferences. Beautiful baskets, look at that. So again, what is tribal environmental knowledge? It's, it's something, you know, we can talk about traditional ecological knowledge, um, and there's lots of different definitions. Needless to say, we have many, many knowledge systems in our communities. And these systems and this knowledge has been passed on over time. Look at that. Look at the diversity there. And the tribal knowledge has helped us manage through these changes. And now this is something that we're facing right now. This is a climate change kind of map. This is showing, this is an older study. I, I want to say it was from 2001. I don't exactly remember. Um, but it's showing what our summers might look like in 2095. And you can see our states. I'm from Wisconsin. In my intro, I said I'm from Green Bay. Um, and what are we looking like in summers, 2095? Looking like Oklahoma, right? And so if you look at our forced removal, right? We went to Kansas, forced from Indiana, kind of this is, I think you can see the cursor, right? Yeah. From here, you know, this is the Lake Michigan, the southern part, forced on a trail of death. Not many people survived that, right? Went to Kansas, and then eventually our tribe split into two. One band stayed in Kansas, the other one, the citizen band, moved to Oklahoma. 
1838, and then in the 1860s, we, we uh, moved to uh, Oklahoma. How many years is that since now? A long time that we've been dealing with social, ecological, environmental change, massive scales, stuff that we're talking about with climate change. We're still here. That's just my tribe. This is, and these are just, uh, this is the, I don't see a lot of maps. So if you're a mapper out there, I'd love to see some of these removal maps so we can understand the scale of what happened. Because I don't think we can move forward without understanding what we've done in the past. But this is just to Oklahoma. These are tribes being removed to Oklahoma. Every one of those tribes experiences massive changes. So I'm going to tell you that we're managing today. I've said that already. I'm going to go into right now a little bit about tribal natural resource management. This is sort of, I know this is some bullet points, and I tried to stay away from this. I like pictures better. But this is easy for me to kind of remember and, and bring us all up to speed quickly. There's 574 federally recognized tribes in the United States. There are state recognized tribes, and there are tribes seeking recognition. So this does not encompass all of our communities. But of these federally recognized tribes, and I worked for the Forest Service for a long time, so that official government-to-government -government relationship with the federal government is with the federally recognized tribes. About 300 of them have significant forest lands, managing for forests. What do I mean? I mean cutting trees and milling lumber, right? using the forest. These aren't wilderness areas. These aren't national parks. These are reservations, and our communities have a relationship with all of the beings in those forests. So they're not something that's set aside. Certainly there are places where we're not going to harvest a tree, right? But it's, it's not a national park sort of mentality. These total about 18 million acres. That's, that's a lot. I'm going to skip those other bullets. Here's a map of the Indian reservations, essentially, and federal lands. This color on the top. This one, those are the reservations. All the other colors on the map are the various federal national forests, national parks, Bureau of Land Management, Fish and Wildlife Refugees. So I said the forests total about 18 million acres, but really all these lands are indigenous lands, and the federal government in particular has responsibility. So when you talk about native forestry, native forest lands, we mean all of this. It's legally required for our federal agencies to work with the tribes, to consult with tribes. So just thinking about 18 million acres, again, a big number. But this is really the scale. And then if you think about all of the state lands, all of the other public lands um, that tribes really have that long-term relationship with, you know, we really have to be engaging tribes. Here's the same map, just looking at Minnesota. Um, and you can see that that history of genocide and removal, right? We have large Ojibwe reservations in the north and small Dakota communities that you barely can see on the map. They're just dots, right? That's intentional, that we have to recognize that. That's, again, in doing land acknowledgement is, is saying we see this and this is wrong. Okay. Here's Wisconsin. Had to throw that in there. Yeah. And, and here's the Menominee Reservation. I'll be talking about that in a moment. 
And I said I had an internship with Oneida. That's right here. This is Green Bay. And Oneida re were removed from New York, right? Stockbridge, Muncie, Band of Mohegan Indians are right here. They were also removed from New York. Okay. All lands in the United States were tribal lands. And that hundreds, thousands of years, generation after generations, we've been managing these lands. And we continue to manage them. So when I say tribal partnerships and environmental knowledge can help us march together into the 21st century, putting indigenous people in the lead, we know that this works. And I'm going to show you an example by talking about Menominee here. So this is an, a map that the Menominee tribe created showing the ancestral territory of Menominee people. Just to orient, I, don't, I think it's probably obvious, but this is the Bay of Green Bay that we call now. This is Fox River, Lake Winnebago, Lake Michigan, Lake Superior here, right? 14 million acres. Menominee people, so Potawatomi, Ojibwe, Odawa, we are all related. We have an origin story coming from the east, uh, migration story. Uh, Menominee do not have a migration story. Menominee have always been there. And in fact, some of the archaeologists that work with the Menominee tribe have shown village sites um, before the glaciers. And then as the glacier came, the sites moved. And as the glaciers retreated, the people moved back to where they were before in this area. These are the Menominee people, the ones that have always been there, the ancient ones. The reservation is here highlighted in yellow. It's 95% forested. And again, why am I telling you this? I'm showing you tribal environmental knowledge can work and it can lead us forward, okay? From 1854, when that reservation was finalized in treaties, until today, they have cut timber from their forests harvest trees, milling lumber. Here's an early shot of the lumber mill. Here's another mill shot, log drive down the river. Here's a more or less modernist shot of their sawmill. From 1854 until today, they've been managing this forest. And today they have more trees of higher quality than when they started. And if you totaled all of the lumber that they've taken off, it's equivalent of clear cutting at two and a half or three times. They've got more and it's higher quality than when they started. I'll ask all of you, maybe take a, a minute to think to yourself, what is sustainability? How do you define that? This is a picture from Menominee, a fire tower on the reservation, right? That's a, that's forest, right? That's, and you saw it's not that far away. It doesn't, it's not like, it's, it's, it's not isolated by mountains, right? Highway 29, if you just, just go east, you know, 94, 29, you'll, you'll go right into it, right? That's what they've got. This has been harvested probably heavier than any other place in the United States, more intensely, and look at that. If you ask Menominee people, how do you define sustainability? One of the things they'll say, look at the satellite image. Right, you can see that shape here, that cutout of the reservation. This is Stockbridge, this is Menominee. Here's Bay of Green Bay, Lake Superior to the north. 
I'll just put the lines in there so you can see. How do you define sustainability? Many Menominee people, look at the satellite image. Look at Google Earth. That's how we define sustainability. This is, I like to put this up here. This is treaty, because our treaties are so important. Right? The 1854, 1856, Menominee signed two final treaties with the US government. Um, you see this coin was given in, I think, the 1848 treaty, if I'm not mistaken on this one, given to Menominee by the US government. Exchange of gifts, showing that relationship. This one is, you know, you can see it minted on that coin there. Friendship, right? We're gonna be friends. We're gonna honor our agreements. And at that time, they were reducing the reservation here, right? The treaties that were being signed were reducing, reducing all that land, reduced to a reservation. And so you wonder how you're gonna survive as a people. And Chief Oshkosh, one of the treaty era leaders of Menominee, said this, that basically telling the people how they would be sustainable um, on this small reservation. And if you start on one side of the reservation, starting with the rising sun, work towards the setting sun, but take only the mature trees, the sick trees, the trees that have fallen. And when you reach the end of the reservation, you can turn around, cut the other way from the setting sun to the rising sun, and the trees will last forever. They've been doing that. They're showing us that this is possible. They're leading us forward into what we are now in the 21st century. Chief Oshkosh started that out. Certainly there were generations before him that were understanding this system in this way. And you can compare that to what was happening all around that reservation in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and it was being liquidated and burned and turned into farmland, right? Or attempting to farm, which didn't work out so well in the north. I'll show this, I know I'm with some archivists, I'm not actually gonna ask you to read this. This is a law from 1890, it looks old, I like to put this up here, but that says, so 1854, you have the treaties, you have Chief Oshkosh saying, we wanna harvest these trees forever. This is the first law, 1890, that I can find that establishes harvest limits. And it says they will only harvest 20 million board feet a year. What is that? I'm a forester, I even have a hard time with that. Maybe, well, my colleague probably can <laughs> deal with that. But what is 20 million board feet? Put it, needless to say, it's a limit on timber harvesting. And the Menominee were all in favor of this, right? We can harvest like Chief Oshkosh was telling us, a little bit at a time. Because all around it was being cut. 1890 is the peak of the pine coming off the land. Right? They're sitting here saying, so Menominee were into this. They thought this was great. US government thought, okay, this is cool because slowly they will clear cut the reservation and become farmers. But slowly, controlled in a controlled manner, like a controlled skid into farming. Right? diametrically opposed. And you see Menominee, a history of Menominee working, you know, the, the power dynamics, to, to say the least, were very unequal, unequal. And, but Menominee have this ability to work within the system. A lot of our tribes do. Um, here are some of those, those leaders. Again, some old sawmill photos. And I didn't want to leave out Minnesota because I, I, I come here and I look at documents and I'm trying to understand how Menominee have done this. And I see that in 1899, February 1st, so 
you know, we're close to February 1st right now. Um, the Minnesota Chippewa Indians, it says Chippewa Indians of Minnesota, the Pillager, other bands of Leech Lake, Red Lake, um, White Earth, Mille Lacs, Cass Lake. Um, they write to the U.S. government saying, hey, that 1890 law that limits harvesting on Menominee, we want that here. We see that it's working out well for them. We think we can do that too. And we're upset because you're cutting all the pine trees and we're not benefiting. We're not in charge of this. You're coming onto our lands and doing that. Um, I, won't, I won't read this, but basically that's what the letter says. And here's some of the signatures. And we have a different outcome here. You could ask yourselves, what would we look like in the 21st century in Minnesota if the government had taken the tribes up on this? We would, I would argue we would probably see satellite images with all of the reservations here in Minnesota, just like we see with Menominee. Who knows? This is 1890. This, was, this one was 1889, but the 1890 law in Menominee, that's before the Forest Service. That's before we had schools of forestry in the United States. Menominee were leading the way. Our indigenous peoples were leading the way. Here's an old sawmill. This is 1910. Check my time here. Okay. So Menominee Forest, forest management are really part of Menominee identity. I'll show a few more pictures. I'll kind of go quickly through here and, and I'll transition into partnerships so then we have some time for questions. And I will talk about wild rice, I <laughs> promise you. We know the, the word in Ojibwe Potawatomi um, for wild rice is Monomen, right? Menominee. That's a name that others had given them. Menominee um, are very um, tied as well culturally, spiritually to wild rice. So what, what does Menominee Forest look like 100 years ago? Here's some, a pine grove. You, I don't know if you can see the little person in here. Yeah. Whoops, I went too fast. Notice that they're all the same kind of, the trees kind of look like they're the same size they came up. I'll explain that in a second. But here's also on the Menominee Reservation. This was, this was open land. This wasn't, the government didn't do this. This is how the land was. This is Menominee, generation after generation burning, keeping this forest open. The Indian agents and probably some of the folks you see in this picture were saying, this will help the Menominee become farmers because they can graze their cattle in that area. There's lots of grass. That's what the description says in the old surveys. Lots of grass for grazing, good grazing land, right? Here's another Menominee picture. Look at the sky through those trees. Look at the ground. These are open lands. There's fire involved in this. Here's another, this one. The, so the Smithsonian was out there, the ethnographers, right? Capturing life ways as the Indians were going to vanish, right? We didn't vanish, we're still here. But we have these records. And, and anthropologists, Cultural people might be looking at different things, but I'm a forester, so I look at the trees in the background. Again, you can see the sky. You're not picking berries under a dense forest. And then here, they didn't have a lot of photographs of this, or I couldn't find any, but you can see the sugar maple. There was, there is a lot of sugar maple on the Menominee Forest. And this is closed. You can't really see the sky. You see a lot of shade, even the tents and um, the, the boiling uh, shack, there are abutting trees, right? This is a closed canopy forest. This is dense. 
on Menominee, following the law and following Chief Oshkosh, you have 150 plus years of sustained yielded logging, only harvesting what's growing, never harvesting more than that. One Menominee uh, person in their, uh, a leader in their community said, there are only two ways to get pine forest back in, into the forest, either through shelter wood cuts, that's, or massive forest fire. Every pine stand on our reservation dates back to a massive forest fire. Another uh, Menominee tribal member said, my grandmother has told me stories. Without being able to use fire since the reservation was established, it's become more and more closed. Okay, they're talking about those older photos and how that was part of the life ways, culture. And then when we start thinking about clear cutting, this is what, what um, people thought of, think about clear cutting. And one, one leader says, clear cutting was viewed as ugly from back when the Pine Barrens came through here. They seeded their land and it was cleared. You can imagine your relatives, all those species being cleared away and burned, right? All around. You've seen, you've seen the pictures of the cutover, right? Another Menominee tribal member just told me, an elder tribal member once told me right out, if you ever see clear cutting, that's not supposed to be. That's not the Menominee way. We never do that. Without heavier harvesting, without light hitting that forest floor, without fire, what happens? Other trees start to grow, right? And you can see that in this picture. It's not the best picture, but you can see all those pines look like they're probably about the same age. They came back, what, after a disturbance, either a harvest or a fire or a windstorm and fire. Pine trees need light. They need mineral soil, which means that the duff layer is gone. So how do you get that? Fire burns it. Now we can kind of drag rakes. We can rake the forest. Right? Yeah. But following that, just harvesting a tree here or a small group of trees there was creating an ecological condition that was new. And the foresters were starting to recognize this and seeing in the inventory and thinking, well, we got to do something here. Otherwise, all these pine trees, they, they don't live forever. Right? And we're going to be stuck in a situation where every, har every stand of pine needs to be harvested. Here's back to that first shot that I showed. And you can see those pine trees kind of coming out out of other stuff that's growing in. So this is an ecological problem. And so Menominee start doing different things. This is in that real open area, those early where the cattle were in that, that Smithsonian picture. So this is right in that same area. It had grown... You couldn't walk two feet into it. You couldn't see like 10 feet into it because um, it was so overgrown. So they started harvesting, started burning, putting fire back on that landscape. Again, look at the trees and how that background looks. It looks very similar to those early pictures. Here's an aerial view. Right, this, is, this is pretty, I guess, heavy management, intensive management. Foresters really saw some of this. This is a restoration. There's other areas where this was real sandy. Um, big blue stem was coming up after these burns. It had been, the, the soil has memory, right? Remembering what was there and it's coming back after these burns. But you can imagine too, after a couple generations of only harvesting a tree here, or a couple trees there, not really doing any of these larger scale clear cuts or we call shelter woods. Um, you start getting a lot of conflict, and the community was conflicted over this. People were fighting. Why are we doing this? This isn't the way. 
And I start wondering, how do you resolve these conflicts? And one of the people I work with, Menominee tribal member, she says, I think there's always going to be issues about, the, about forest management because it's always important to the Menominee people. If there wasn't ever any issues or controversy or dialogue, then I would worry because it's the for, it means the forest is not important to us anymore. She's telling us that conflict is okay, in fact, necessary, and it shows deep passion. We have to have that relationship, though, to see that within each other when we have these conflicts. And so now we're going to leave Menominee, and the, the last part, I will talk about rice here. I think I've got, what do I have, five or ten minutes? I'm looking for a, five minutes? Ten, five or ten, okay, perfect. So we'll leave the land of Menominee on the Wolf River there. See those beautiful pine trees in the sun. We'll talk about partnerships and think about this idea that we have to form these relationships with each other in order to, conflicts are okay, but we have to treat each other with respect. And so what I'll talk about now is partner, perspectives on partnership um, and collaboration from our Monoman Collaborative or our Monoman Project. This is a project that tribes in the region really are leading. Again, they're leading us in the 21st century land management. Tribes have been really concerned in this region about decline in wild rice. It's a complicated decline. There's environmental reasons. There's social reasons. There's economic. There's all these reasons coming together. It's a wicked problem. What's going on? We've seen declines, steep declines in Michigan. Wisconsin has declines. We're worried about Minnesota. Right, so tribes are approached. Some of us here at the university with questions of what's going on, how can we work together? Some of our scientists um, also reached out to tribes asking, how can we help? What are your needs? And this is, this is our project here. And so these are, I'm gonna go through five. We have, we have a number of these sort of strategies to build partnerships with tribes. Um, but the, num the first one that we, we really work with is acknowledge past and present harms. I started off showing a lot of removal, that's harm. We all started off thinking about Dakota removal and what has happened to their communities here where we stand, that is harm. It's not just past, it's present harm. We can see that today. We have to acknowledge. So with wild rice, right, the University of Minnesota has developed cultivated wild rice, right? Looking in the university archives here, actually a student, Chris Rico here, thank you, did a lot of work over the past couple of years looking in the archives to see how was the university approaching wild rice, wild rice research? What are the goals? Who's involved? What are they doing? And the archive has wonderful materials that kind of help us tell that picture. To summarize it, the university really has stated that bringing wild rice into cult, under cultivation, like we do other crops, will be a way to support tribal economies, tribal communities. It's still along those veins of making Indians farmers, right? This is, this is an important, sacred um, plant for us. Our stories are that we came here. Why did we migrate and stop in this area? Because 
wild rices here. It's food. It's economy that we can sell. Somebody needs shoes for school at the beginning of the year, et cetera, right? It's part of our ceremonies. Their spiritual relative, it's a sovereign being from our perspectives, right? And the university is thinking, okay, we can shift this into something that's, that's created for cultivation. You could do more of it. You could do it more intensely. It could be more efficient. Right? Many of the tribes, although not all of them, have been opposed to this work. There's a couple reasons why. One is that spiritual connection, especially as the university and we start getting genetic technology where the genes are being mapped and there's no genetic modification happening. I always have to say that because I think people get confused, but mapping the genes is happening and has happened. Um, and some of the tribes have told the university, that's our sacred relative, you have no right to do that. That wild rice has a right to its own sovereignty. And looking at those genes is against that. Especially because it's not being done to support wild rice, it's being done for economics. So the, 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 the analogy I always use, I say, okay, if we had a way to sort of genetically change our grandmother so she can cook more soup and she can cook it longer, so like 15 hours a day grandmas are cooking the soup, Right? Nobody would do that. Right? Nobody would do that. Grandma's sovereign. She has her own rights. And making her do that for economic gain is, is absurd, right? So when we think about tribal perspectives and wild rice, this is another relative. It's easy to say Mother Earth, Grandfather Sky, Grandfather Tree. But to really think about what it means to be a relative is, is what we're talking about here. And again, our tribes are leading us and teaching us and showing us how this can work. But if we had a genetic, let's say grandma's sick, and now we have a genetic technology that might make a medicine that might help her, then we would have a family discussion about it. Right? It still might not be the right way, but it's not trying to make grandma, essentially enslaving grandma. right? And people think about that um, for wild rice. So this is, we acknowledge this in our project. So when I'm talking about this, I'm obligated, because of the relationships I have with our tribal partners, because of the relationships we have with the ecosystem and wild rice, we need to talk about this. Can I solve it? No. I can, you know, give my perspectives to people. Um, but we can also walk and chew gum at the same time. And there are these real concerns about wild rice ecosystems. So what are some other ones? I have five here, so it's not, it, it, we're, we're getting to the end. Um, another strategy to build partnership is collaborate as equals. And, and in fact, collaborate as more than equals, where the tribes are leading the way. Right? We need to respect tribal knowledge, respect the labor that tribes give, small natural resource departments. Lots of times they don't have big budgets. Might be easy for the US Forest Service where I used to work. You know, we had 30 some thousand employees, right? Compare that to an environmental planning department that has 15, right? So, tribal labor is a big thing. Um, and respect tribal goals. Again, our tribes have said we would like to look at certain things in this ecosystem. We'd like to look at how water level 
might impact it, how climate change might impact wild rice ecosystems, how chemistry, et cetera. So let collaborate as equals. Another strategy is formal agreements. So signing formal agreements is really important to build strategies because then everyone's on the same page. We know in government, in universities, people change, in tribes, people change, right? But if you have a formal agreement between our leaders, that gives everybody a record of what we need to be doing and a clear sort of direction of where things are going. And if we're collaborating as equals, these agreements are really important for all parties. And here you see um, a tribal chairwoman, university president, um, DNR commissioner, and MNPCA, uh, uh, Pollution Control Agency commissioners. These are leaders working together. Our leaders need to show us this too. This one is, I think, one of the most important is fostering personal relationships. That's another strategy. This, this is a picture of one of our student interns and one of our tribal partners, a, a wild rice program manager, tribal chairperson. No, excuse me, tribal uh, council member. We're out in the water. We're canoeing the waters together. I always get the question, well, how do we incorporate traditional ecological knowledge into management? And the answer that I've heard over and over, and now I've adopted it, is we have to canoe the waters together. We have to walk the land together. That's forming that relationship, not only with each other as humans, but with others as wild rice, as water. Right? This is super important. And who wouldn't want to be on that canoe right now, right? It's pretty cold outside. That looks great. Eating meals together, we're doing that right now. We're forming relationships. Or we're sitting at tables, we might not know everybody. Right? This, is, this, is, this is really important. The, the powwow picture I'll show again. Going to tribal events, powwows. Going to the tribe. Not saying, hey, come down to Minneapolis. That's important too, but we need to, we need to walk the land together. We need to, we, need to go to the tribes and let tribes lead. Did I miss one? Okay. And I, I might have, not, I don't know if I put on number five, so I can't remember what the next slide is, but this is all getting, we're all related. We are all relatives, our plants, animals. And I apologize to some of you, I don't have the little blurry eyes for the owl. Yeah, <laughs> some of you get that one. Um, yeah, these are some White Mountain Apache student interns working on, uh, working on um, Mexican spotted owl research with one of my good friends uh, in the Forest Service. You know, we're all related. Again, I go back. It's easy to say that, but to actually like really feel what does that mean? This is a grandma. This is your cousin. We don't like all of our cousins. That's okay. Mosquitoes. <laughs> right. We, we need to think about this. Here's a picture of our kids. Here's um, our relationships with, with birch bark for wild rice winnowing. You see a canoe. We use canoes for harvesting, et cetera. Right? I challenge you all to think about that. And again, putting tribes forward is a way to learn how to become relatives, better relatives, stronger relatives. And partnerships help restore these connections. Right. 
all my research is, is I'm, I'm, I'm doing wild rice work a lot. And I, I think that's funny for a forester. I like trees. Um, but why am I doing this? Tribes told us to do this. They said, hey, Mike, we need this. We, we, we need you involved here. Come, come in this project. Do this work. And for me, it's, it's the, the, the relationships with water, wild rice, are intimately related with the forest. And we're teasing out some of that, both culturally as well as um, biophysically, I guess. And so if we can restore our connections as relatives to each other, right, and to the lands, to the waters, and all the other ones who live here with us, we can move forward solving all these wicked problems. I truly believe that is true. So miigwech, thank you very much. These are just some, I guess, symbols of the, this is all based on research. It doesn't sound like it, and I like to tell funny stories, but this is all my research. <laughs> um, so who funds it? My tribe here, uh, University of Wisconsin, University of Minnesota, of course, College of Menominee Nation, this symbol here, beautiful wild rice uh, collaborative logo, um, and National Science Foundation. So. Miigwech, I think we have mics for questions. I appreciate your time. Mike, thank you very much. My name is Paul Hart. Uh, I camp at Boulder Campground in the St. Croix State Forest. And in fact, I drive through an indigenous community on the way to that campground. There was a huge straight line wind that came through that uh, state forest in 2011 and knocked down, I'll bet, 80 or 90% of the forest. Maybe you're familiar with this. And the DNR immediately came in and harvested all of the downed trees. They have been planting replacement trees. But I'm just wondering, I'm, I'm reacting to this out of the context of having also camped at Yellowstone National Forest, National Park, in, in 1988, during the summer of the Great Fire, okay. when the National Forest Service left many trees there uh, to allow the rejuvenation of the forest. So I'm just interested in what your thinking has been about what the DNR did. I'm not looking for controversy or, or criticism, but I'm just really curious about what you think about that. Yeah, if we think about the natural system, so pine again needs light, needs some mineral soil to regenerate, meaning that the duff layer has to be gone. How does that happen? Windstorms are a big one. Areas will be blown down, straight line winds, tornadoes. If that happened before we had chainsaws, right? Our tribal communities, our animals, that would create a linear barrier, let's just say that, right? It'd be hard to cross. And so our communities have had relationships with fire that would be a perfect place to have fire come back in. And whether it happens, you know, we talk a lot about lightning strikes and what's human cause and not. And you know, 
in our ecosystem, it gets dry sometimes, but like I think the amount of fire that people are putting on the ground is underestimated. And so I would see that linear path, maybe a couple of years later, it's kind of dried out, guarantee the tribe would be burning there. Why, again, like if you have two miles long, it's gonna be hard to like get through, you know what that looks like, the tangled mess. But also because that helps create a different habitat. And that windstorm is happening across the landscape, creating a, essentially a large mosaic of diversity. When I talk about diversity, I don't just mean different plant species. I'm talking about different ages too. So those young pine versus those big massive ones that I showed or medium-sized ones also that I showed, right? Those, that's diversity there, that's structural diversity. Are you ground ones? medium-sized ones, a little denser, and large canopy ones. And those big canopy ones go, they grow taller than the other trees around them. So that's kind of what I'm thinking. In terms of sort of how manage, today when this stuff happens, there's real concerns about one fire getting sort of out of control. There's concerns about insect. So pine beetle can get in there, and then if there's a lot of pine around it, those beetles can spread. And tribes are concerned about their land. Uh, one thing I didn't say, but I will say it now, our tribal, those reservation boundaries that we have, those treaty boundaries, those lines, those aren't changing. We have to make sure that what we've got in, in our communities, in our, on our reservations, in our treaty areas um, is maintained. We're not leaving. I'm not just gonna go down to Oklahoma. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm not just gonna move because this is our homeland, right? We're not gonna go back out east when things go awry here. We are here, we are part of this place and we always will be. And so this is one of the reasons why tribes are so concerned about climate change, so concerned about how we manage and doing amazing management. I just talked about Menominee, but we can talk about fire use, um, that tribes are leading the nation and how they're using fire, understanding fire. Um, I think where this idea of invasive species, the tribal leadership on in invasive species is amazing. I don't, that one people haven't heard about as much, but if we again consider that all beings are our relatives, there's no invasion. There are other beings that have a purpose on this planet. And a lot of tribal elders, if you talk to them about this, is we have to understand why they're here. And we're, rather than eradicate those bugs. Nobody wants an emerald ash borer infestation. But some of the early management that our governments did, particularly Canada was kind of the first governmental action, was cut every single ash tree. And they did this in a Potawatomi tribal area on the other side from Detroit not really consulting well with the tribes. Tribes did not, the tribe there, Walpole Island, did not want it. Government cut it. They thought, well, we can cut a swath. If there's no ash trees, the bug won't be there. So they cut all these trees that are essentially Potawatomi trees. And right after, they found it on the other side of this line. So now you have a community without their trees, without their relatives. And it didn't really do anything. They weren't consulted. They would have had other ideas about how to approach this. I see that same thing. So 
again, I'm a forester and you saw Menominee, you can cut trees and mill lumber and that's okay. If you, it's done in a way that's looking at perpetuating and supporting a relative. Now, there's a big sawmill there. Usually you have a sawmill like that and then 100 years later, there's no sawmill anymore, right? That's kind of the pattern. Not at Menominee. Hopefully that helped. Other questions, comments? Great work, Mike. It was a wonderful presentation. Um, so um, I'm just interested in how you address the false narrative that indigenous communities want to ignore um, the state of being of their relatives. Um, there seems to be this narrative that they don't want to cut trees or they don't want to actually do this. And so I'm just interested to know in your work and in your research how you are addressing that false narrative. Oh, that's a, how do I do that in my own work? That's, that's a good question. I think, kind of like I just said, I didn't go into talk about the national park and, and sort of wilderness as wilderness where we have laws that say basically no management, definitely not harvesting trees for timber. Um, that, I use that as an example that, and then say the forest service over here versus national park service, forest services harvesting trees, going into the woods, forming that relationship with, with the land, with the trees. Um, I see a lot of potential similarities between like the DNR or the Forest Service versus the Park Service and the preservation. Like that's, yes, there are sacred areas where we wouldn't harvest trees and this is across the country and there are places where tribes do not want extraction to happen, but it's not incompatible. And in fact, a lot of our like ash trees, for example, if we're not, what some of those basket makers that I show, we've done a number of interviews with them, and they'll say, um, we're, we, if we don't use this resource, we will lose it. And you'll hear that, you hear that, and, and Robin Kimmer is braiding sweetgrass, she says that too, if we don't harvest sweetgrass, we will lose it. You hear other communities talking about this, that we will lose these. That use, is a responsibility. It's showing respect to those other beings because that's how this system works, this ecological system works. It doesn't work if we just say, oh, we're not gonna go over there. Because then you do have the beetle breakouts, the giant fires, and often, but, but I will say, that on the other side of the coin, a lot of times, and maybe this is where you're going too, environmentalists might say, oh yeah, we're, we're against the pipeline too, so we're gonna, and, and it's right, we should support indigenous protests on, on all sorts of issues, um, but they might see a similarity or commonality that they don't actually have because they don't understand the tribal perspective. And, and an example I've used, this is decades old, but I think about the whaling that happens out in the Pacific Northwest, and you know, environmentalists are not into that. They might be marching in the streets with the tribes for not cutting a redwood tree but when it comes down to whaling, people are 
they don't understand it because they don't understand what that tribal relationship is because they haven't walked the lands and canoed those, that, that ocean with them to understand what, what their relationship is. And in fact, not doing those harvests is disrespect. It's breaking that relationship and our elders are telling us we need to come back to our relationships and learn how to live together. And we have responsibility as humans here. And at this point in time, with the climate change, with all these problems, like we have a lot of responsibilities. So that's how I kind of combat that. And I think, too, there's a myth of wilderness. There's a myth that the United States is built on this vacant landscape, right? I do a lot of environmental history, the Environmental History Association. Um, I'm involved in that. And it's the early, the early sort of work in that field of study is all about breaking away from wilderness. Like, it's not, this, these wilderness areas aren't areas untouched by man. The wilderness acts as untrammeled by man. There's no place like that. It's, it's, it's not a real thing. We've created what we think wilderness is, and then people get real uptight about it. And so if it's in Yellowstone and, and a major fire comes through and we just look at it, that might be the right thing, but it might not be. But we don't have that option there. And I think with climate change and what we're doing now, we need every option on the table. But we're locking away resources that could potentially go away because we're not using them. Yeah, thanks for that question. Over here. So if you could give a, a grade, A to F, to um, uh, the public land managers in Minnesota, so the Forest Service, the DNR, and, and counties, and their relationship with the tribes in managing forests. Are we not willing to do that? Or if not, how does it compare now to 20 years ago? OK. Um, <laughs> I, I'm so, I'm so, yeah. I'm always optimistic. I think forming these, yeah, repeat the question is looking at Minnesota and how the state manages forests, how the federal government manages forests, how the county governments manage forests, and how those entities rate with, relate with tribes. Like, how are they doing? Um, I'm optimistic. I think we're moving in the right direction. I'm here. So why did I leave the Forest Service? Not because I don't like what they're doing. I really enjoyed working with the Forest Service, and I think they're doing a really good work. I think out of the federal agencies, they're doing the best in tribal partnerships. Not every place is great, and there's lots of problems out there, but the Forest Service has all these things like formal agreements. They've got um, partnerships, formal and informal. They're doing projects with tribes. They're walking the lands. They're managing treaty resources hand in hand with the tribes, letting the tribes lead. So Forest Service is doing a really good job out of a lot of the agencies. Um, so I left the Forest Service so I could teach natural resource professionals about tribes, about treaties, about responsibility. And I, I thought to myself, because again, I liked working for the Forest Service. I was working with tribes. We were doing wonderful research. I have colleagues that are amazing scientists, social scientists, cultural experts, indigenous folks, et cetera. But I was going out in the field. Again, there's like 30,000 Forest Service employees. Not all of them know a lot about tribes. 
And so I would go out, and, and I was with the Forest Service for 20 years or so, and doing a lot of this sort of teaching on the ground. Okay, it's your job. Now you're the new person here. Okay, this is a treaty right. This is what we got to do here. And it was starting to become, it's overwhelming, right? Then I had the opportunity to apply for a job here that the university was starting up a tribal natural resource faculty position. And I thought, okay, if I can teach 80 students a year over 10 years, that's 800 natural resource professionals that are now out there. I don't have to do it again. Well, maybe I do, but they're out there. They've heard about it. And, and the, what I always tell my students too is like, I want you to be able to learn about treaties, what they are, and be able to have tools to go out wherever you are, wherever you stand, to think about the indigenous people, to learn about the history, to talk to their natural resource folks, to look at those treaties. Because that's, I don't know every single tribe. I barely know like the tribes in this region, right? It's, I'm still learning about my own tribe. We all are, we're on this journey. So how can I talk about seven, uh, 574 federally recognized tribes and then state tribes and then looking for, right? And then indigenous peoples all over, including peoples in Bolivia? No, it's impossible. But I can give those tools. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm here every Thursday. Yeah, and, so, and, and, and then I'll go to the state. The state has uh, consultation policies for each agency. So the governor has executive order that says we have to have consultation policies. I think a lot of, if not all, the departments have tribal liaisons now. That's good stuff. Here at the university, we have uh, a senior advisor to the president who's essentially setting this up. So the president has been consulting with the tribes on a regular basis. Karen Divers, our, our person here, she was a Fond du Lac tribal chairwoman. She also advised Obama. And what did Obama do? He started having annual meetings with all the tribes. She's bringing that, that, that imprint is coming here. I'm really excited about that. Counties I'm less familiar with. I know that there's more economic pressure for the counties to harvest trees. But if we look at things as a whole and as the forest as a whole system, we need places. I'm, again, I'm a forester. I believe in wood. This stuff is sustainable. Right now, this podium is holding carbon. I think it's wood. <laughs> right? Forest products are good things. Right? It, this, is, this is part of our solution. I might blow your minds here, but scientists are looking at nanoparticles made from wood to turn into this. Cell phones, screens. Imagine if you could compost this, <laughs> right? That, right? That's going to be sustainable. That's the future. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm pro-wood. <laughs> Yeah, over here. All right, I'll head over to you. Um, thank you so much for your questions and engagement. This will be the last question okay. of the night. Okay. Again, I'm here every Thursday. Well, well thank you. This is a narrow question. It's about Minnesota and Wisconsin. If you wanted to see a good stand of white pine and looked around Minnesota and found there wasn't much left after what was taken out, 
uh, would you do better to go to Wisconsin? Oh, I don't I think you're always, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> well, I'm not here every Thursday, yeah. Tuesday. No, there's, there's I, I think like, I'll just implore everyone and I think all of you are here because you probably feel some sort of connection with the natural world, right? And it, it behooves all of us. It behoo I tell myself this and I don't do it enough. I need to be walking with my relatives in the forest. I need to be canoeing more. And, and I think we can all do that. So whether you're in Wisconsin or you're here in Minnesota, right, we need to, we need to be out more. And seeing some of those remnants is magnificent. Seeing, again, if you, so, so you, Menominee is a closed reservation, but there are two highways that go through that you could drive. Highway 54, I think it's 54. Um, it's very windy. There's these big pines right off the side of the road. I mean, you can see it as you're driving through. It's beautiful. Um, just being out there is important. And so finding, and I know there's lists of different like old growth areas, the state natural areas in, in both states, um, the wilderness area, right? There's, there's places where you can go. I don't have my maps. I wouldn't know where to send you right now. Um, I probably would send you to Wisconsin just because I know that so well. Like right north of the Wis Menominee Reservation is a, a stand of um, essentially never logged pine. Cathedral pines, there's probably cathedral pines here. I don't even know, but usually you'll hear cathedral pines. What is that? Those are the old remnants. You know, the lost 40. Yeah. So the Lost 40 here, yeah. Lost 40 State Park. Yeah, I need to go there. Yeah. Well, thank you all very much. This has been wonderful. My name is Amelius White. Hey, Dave. I didn't so my name is Amelia. Hi, Sarah. Uh, so my name is Amelius White. I am. Uh, I have the honor of being chair of the Friends of the Library Board, uh, and I just want to say one thing to Mike. You know, he's he was being true to Wisconsin. He's being true to his alma mater. My phone was the one who was that was ringing, and I'm lucky I stopped it because it's the it's the fight song, not for the University of Minnesota that I love dearly, but. For my alma mater, the, the universe, or my first alma mater, the University of Southern California. So, um, fight on, there you go. Uh, so, just a couple of things uh, before I let you go. So, I saw a post uh, on a friend's Facebook this morning that talked about being grateful for various things. Having a place to sleep last night, having something to eat this morning. So, I'm thinking, and thinking about gratitude. So, most of what I'm, or my remarks today are going to include the words thank you and thanks a lot. So I'm just gonna uh, say that. So I wanna thank you all for your presence this evening, particularly because it's the coldest day of the, of the new year so far, but hopefully it'll be the coldest day of any of our events this, this spring. Uh, I'm grateful for the friends of the libraries and the supporters of the university libraries who are here today. I've served and serve on a number of boards, and I'm particularly proud of the work that the Friends Board does uh, on behalf of our great University of Minnesota libraries. Uh, it's an honor to lead a group of, a great group of people 
who are dedicated to supporting and advocating for our libraries, which are a treasure uh, here at the university. Uh, as the former president of the Campus Club Board, uh, I will beg your indulgence for a second and say that I'm also very happy that there are many members of the Campus Club here. Uh, the Campus Club has been a longtime co-sponsor of the Feast of Words, and so I want to acknowledge the importance of that relationship, uh, that partnership, to use uh, Mike's language from earlier. And then I'd love to thank all the members of their team who helped to make this event uh, possible. Uh, so it's, it's glad that we could be here after a couple of years. The, the Friends Board wouldn't be able to do what it does without our great board members, so I'd like to thank uh, our current board members who are here. If you're here, maybe you raise your hand. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I've been on I've been on many boards, and this is the first board where former board members still show up to stuff. So most boards you're done like see you bye, but not the friends. So we have a number of former board members here. So if I could ask you to raise your hands, I know there are some here. So thank you for your um, your presence, and I don't take for granted what our the work that our current board members do as well as our former board members to support the friends in the libraries. Uh, I also want to thank the library staff, both those who support the friends in this event, but also who just make our libraries as good as it is. So thank you, all of you as well. Uh, thank you to Mike Dockery, our, our honored guest. Whenever I come to a friends event, I always think, I'm, I always say I'm going to leave knowing something more than I did when I got here, and, and that's the case today. I, I made some notes. Those of you who read my column, my intro and short stacks, uh, the one in February will be inspired by this, this talk. You know, I'm in my day job, I work at the university and I work in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. And when I think of what we're trying to do in that space, Mike's uh, advice about acknowledging past and present harms, uh, collaborating as equals, fostering personal relationships, realizing that we're all related, that's what we're, that would, if people realized that, we'd be a lot better off. So uh, great, great, great advice. Uh, as I mentioned, this is a event as a partnership with the Campus Club and the Friends of the Libraries. Uh, the Friends relies on our friends and the financial support they do to be able to put on events such as this. So for those of you who are official Friends of the Library, thank you. Uh, if you're not yet a friend, you can become one. Um, uh, there are forms, I think, at the table in the, the back, and you could help support events such as this. Uh, our Friends Forum uh, Series for Curious Minds is what we, what we call it. Uh, our next event, which is kind of fitting con considering the topic of this event, uh, is going to be, uh, it's called Musical Impressions, The Art of George Morrison an afternoon of art and music with jazz guitarist Brianne, and I'm apologizing if I'm pronouncing the name, the first name wrong, Morrison. Morrison is the son of nationally recognized Ojibwe artist George Morrison. The event is Sunday, March 19th, beginning at 2 p.m. in Cowles Auditorium in the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Hope, hope to see uh, many of you there. Again, you don't have to be a member of the Friends to attend. It's a, it's a free event, so you all are welcome. And then lastly, thank you for joining us here tonight. Get home safely, stay safe, stay well, and stay hopeful. Thanks. Thank